And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. I can see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove, but I can't see the stove. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry. I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. What do you do, Carl? Carl is a inventor slash entrepreneur. Yeah, I'm still looking for that home run, you know? I mean, when I saw the iPod first time, I was like, you know, I could have kicked myself. That was so hard on him. What's your name? Carl's my name. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to move out. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, I'll present the conclusion to The Great Gildersleeve starring Hal Perry, and then it's a classic radio police drama on the FBI in peace and war. With me, as always, is my co-host, Lisa Wolf, looking very vivacious. Lisa. Thanks, Carl. That That's how I feel. Vivacious. I'm always complimenting you. you and I say how vivacious you are mm. and nothing back. No. No, it's like a mm. one-way street with mm. you. Hmm. Were you looking for the compliment back? I would like a compliment okay, once I'm in a, a while. I'm going to work on Maybe that. Maybe how one. tall and handsome I am. Okay, next hour I know, will, I'm going to work on something. Tall, dark, and handsome. I'm gonna, it's going to take me a while to come up with it, so yeah. give talented. me an hour. Talented. How about talented? I have to think about it. Um, what else? Um, um I don't know. That's about it, really. That's you are very well-versed on I'm, classic I'm, radio. Wow. I take that. I'll take that. Yes, That's a nice you compliment. You are the classic radio expert. I'll take no it. No doubt. Thank you very much. What's happening in the world of Hollywood? Well, shockingly so, there's a new reality show coming to television. Another reality show? Can you imagine? Show? This is there should be a reality show about making reality shows. I, I think there is. Yeah, is there? Yeah. Are you sure Maybe about that? Maybe that could be your next venture. Right. You're always looking for the next new right. thing. Always trying to make a buck. <laughs> That's right. Mariah Carey is filming her own reality show. Mariah Carey. It's going to be called Mariah's World. Oh, okay. Does that sound enticing at all? Um, I don't know if I would want to be in that world. To right. Be honest with well, you. they weren't inviting you exactly, but I was just. But if asking. they called, I probably. I don't think I. I would decline. I would respectfully decline. Okay, that's that's fair. You know, if you gotta, they call, you know, here's the thing: if you say yes to every project, right? You know, then you got to make them think that you're tough to get. You know, hard right. to get. Hard, hard to get. And, hard there, to get. and there's another compliment for you, Carl. You are I'm hard, hard to get. I am hard to get. I'm going to go with that. So this is a reality TV series which showcases the behind-the-scenes... The behind behind the scenes? Behind oh, okay. the scenes drama of right. her Las Vegas residency at... What hotel is she at? Um, I'm My favorite say hotel. In the, Caesar's, I said it. Caesar's Palace. Oh, darn it. I think I said it. I was going to say Bellagio. but No, that Caesar's is my favorite hotel in Las Vegas and her upcoming tour. So it's basically a show about Mariah and the crew around her. Right. Okay. Okay. So this is going to be on the E! Network. I give it... Three episodes. Three minutes, I thought you three, were going to no, say. three episodes. Three episodes. It's an eight-part docuseries. Okay. That has, um, I give it eight, eight episodes. Eight episodes. They're also going to be focusing on the behind-the-scenes planning of her Behind? Wedding. Behind the scenes planning her wedding to Australian billionaire. Do you know his name? What? She's marrying another person? Yes, you didn't hear. She's engaged. No. She has a fiancé. His name is James Parker. He's from Australia, and he's some mega billionaire. He's a billionaire. Didn't you see her ring? Why can't... 
Like, um, I, I marry it, a billionaires. I don't that know. Be great. I guess you're in the wrong just, circle. Just here. think about this, Lisa. If a billionaires wanted to marry me, I would first of all say yes. Okay. Okay. That would be. Keep it wouldn't matter mind. anything else. Nothing just, else. No. Nothing, nothing else would matter. Not even the behind part. If she was breathing. And she had a billion dollars. As long as she was breathing, if she had at least a billion dollars, I would say yes. That's good to know. And then, you know how great your life would be? I'd build us a huge studio somewhere. And you'd pay me more than 10 cents. I'd pay you more than 10 cents an episode. (laughs) And I look forward to that. I'd have have it catered. Unfortunately, you're Think about that. It'd be catered every single show and. There'd be people giving you a massage while you're doing the program. All right. Well, in any event, we can all dream. Um, this will premiere late 2016, and um, this is an opportunity for Mariah to show off her world. Very good, Lisa. Let's get uh, to our classic radio show. You want to do that? Sure. All right. Last time, we started out The Great Gildersleeve from February 4th, 1945, a visit by Aunt Hattie. Let's tune in to the conclusion now. Hal Perry stars as The Great Gildersleeve. It's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and there's an unaccustomed atmosphere of quiet and serenity about the house. The parlor is neat with no comic books or boxing gloves scattered about the floor. No banana peels in the ashtrays. Gildersleeve sits twiddling his thumbs in his easy chair, waiting for the quiet hour to begin and dreading it. Quiet hour. Now what? Hi, Gilder. Well, hello, Judge. Boy, am I glad to see you. Come on in. Thank you. I just wondered what you were doing this evening. Jolly Boy's meeting's called off. Horace, if you're at loose ends for the evening, you've come to the right place. We're starting a new thing here. Lots of fun. What is it? Well, Hattie calls it the quiet hour. The family, you know, the kids and all. We just sit around for an hour and enjoy ourselves. You want to sit in on it? I don't think so, thank you, Gilder. I thought we might go to a picture or something. Oh, this will be lots more fun than a picture. Stick around. No, I guess I'll just go home and read. Don't leave me alone here, Horace. Hey, why not stay for supper? No, thanks. Well, sit down a minute and meet Aunt Hattie then. No, I've got to go, Gildy. Sorry. You like her, Judge? She's more fun than a barrel of monkeys. You'll be crazy about her. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I hear different, Gildy. Have a pleasant evening. <laughs> If we're all comfortable. My eye itches. Well, don't rub it. One of the pleasantest ways to start the quiet hour is with music. Uh, Don't you think that would be nice, children? I guess so. And the best music is the music we make ourselves. I think it would be nice if Leroy would play for us. Leroy? Why, he's only taking lessons. Yes, Marjorie. But let's ask ourselves, why does he take lessons? Why, that's the one dollar question. Yes, Leroy... Leroy studies music so he can give pleasure to others. But, Aunt Hattie, nobody gets any pleasure out of Leroy's playing. I do. I think he plays very nicely. I think if we're all quiet and Leroy plays something, we'll enjoy it. Uh, Don't you think so, Throckmorton? Uh, Well, uh, go ahead and play, Leroy. And you enjoy it, Marjorie. I'll try. All right, Leroy. Okay, what'll I play? Something you know. Uh, Dancing Snowflakes? No. What about... uh... The hunter in the wood. It's so corny. Oh, gosh, what do you expect? I'm only a boy. That's right, my boy. You play anything you want to. Oh, I know. Here's one I can play pretty good. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, minuet by Bach. Fine. Fine. 
good, Leroy. Very nice. I thank you. Now, for my first encore, I... You weren't that good. For my first encore, I will play The Merry Farmer by Schumann. <laughs> Suppose you save that for tomorrow night, Leroy. We don't want to run through your whole repertoire in one evening. No. Uh, I think it's time for a little poetry. Poetry? Yes. Uh, do you know any poetry, Leroy? Nah. I know a little. I love it. She would. Now, Leroy, there's nothing the matter with poetry. Every educated person should learn to like poetry. Yeah? You must know some poetry, Leroy. Uh, don't you even know any little nursery rhymes? Well, there's one. I don't know what you'd call it. I don't think it's a nursery rhyme, though. Oh, let's hear it. Nah. Recite it, Leroy. I don't think you'd like it. Recite. Okay. I woke up in the morning and looked upon the wall. There was a flea and a bed bug having a game of ball. <laughs> That'll do, Leroy. <laughs> I know a poem I think is beautiful, Aunt Hattie. We learned it for English last fall. Oh, what is it? Annabelle Lee. What's it about? Oh, it's about a man and a woman, and they were crazy about each other. Leroy. Go ahead and recite it, my dear. Okay. <clears throat> it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. <sighs> Quiet, Leroy. I didn't say anything. Oh! Doc Martin. Go on, Marjorie. Let's see. Oh, gee, I've forgotten it now. I'll have to start over. Oh, for... Okay. It was many and many a year ago. Doorbell, I'll answer it. Good evening, Leroy. Is your uncle home? Oh, sure, Mrs. Ransom. He's here. <laughs> Mrs. Ransom, Hattie. Yes, I know. I do hope y'all will excuse me. I wouldn't want to interrupt anything. You aren't. Good evening, Miss Forrester. Marjorie. Good evening, Mrs. Branson. Hello. It's Martin. I just couldn't resist running over for a minute. Uh, glad to see you any time, Leela. Oh, you're a darling. Uh, Martin, would you like to take me to the movies after supper? Why, sure, Leela. Humphrey Bogart and this new girl in the hive I have not goes on at 9.15. I'm afraid we won't be able to go, Mrs. Ransom. We're on a new schedule here. Schedule? Well, uh, yes. You see, I go to bed at 9 o'clock now, Leela. Nine o'clock. Well, mercy, if you're in your dotage, I think it's a wonderful idea. Miss Rockmorton has family responsibilities, Mrs. Ransom. So I see. Uh, don't get me wrong, Leela. We're trying this new arrangement. Oh, you don't have to explain, Throckmorton. If you want your beauty sleep more than you want a little sociability and enjoyment, it's all right with me. Uh, you don't understand, Leela. Oh, yes, I do. Goodbye, Throckmorton. Uh, Leela! Excuse me, Hattie. Uh, Leela, wait a minute. Why should I, Throckmorton? Uh, come out on the porch and I'll tell you. Leela, I can't let her know I'm going out. Why not? Well, it makes things too unpleasant, that's all. But look, she goes to bed at nine. I'll pretend to go to bed, too, and then I'll sneak out. How about it? It sounds a little sordid, Throckmorton. Just practical. I'll be over at your house right after nine o'clock. We should leave for the picture no later than five after nine. Well, I'll be there. Humphrey Bogart, you say? Mm. And a new girl named Lauren Bacall. I'm dying to see the picture. It says they've discovered a new way to kiss. What's the matter with the old way? <laughs> oh, you devil, you. <laughs> I'll see you later, Leela. All right, nine sharp, yeah. Don't worry. Sorry. <laughs> well, sorry to interrupt our little quiet hour, children. I had to talk a little business with Mrs. Ransom. Young man. Um, Marjorie, suppose you go on with your recitation. Yes, by all means, Marjorie. Continue. It was many long years ago in the country by the sea. Marjorie. Okay. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea 
that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Bedtime. Already? Now remember, Leroy, we agreed we'd go promptly. Is it really 8 o'clock? It certainly is. Marjorie's gone up already. Good night, my boy. Oh, nuts. Good night. Good night, Aunt Hattie. Would you like for me to tuck you in, Leroy? Are you kidding? Oh, I keep forgetting what a big boy you are. I'm sorry. That's okay. You can tuck me in if you you really want to. No, you're too big. I'll just kiss you good night. Good night. Good night, Uncle. Why, George, I believe the kid's improving. How do you do it? Oh, it's not hard, Drop Martin, with a little patience. Uh, I guess I haven't got any. He always makes me mad. Uh, through with the paper? Here you are. You know, I always like to play a game of cribbage before I go to bed. Great. You play cribbage, and I'll read the paper. It takes uh, two to play cribbage, Drop Martin. Two? Oh. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I don't know how. Well, that's all right. I'll teach you. Uh, but, uh... Oh, don't worry. I've taught lots of people. Oh, Hattie, I'm not good at cards. I don't know a club from a jack. Oh, you learn, Throckmorton. You learn, and you'll be crazy about it. Four and a pair is six, and a double run is twelve. Go. Go? I've explained that to you, Throckmorton. Have you a play? Oh, uh, let's see. I've got a pair. Muggins. If what? Uh, didn't I explain Muggins to you? No. Well, when you make a mistake, I can call Muggins and I get a point. That puts me out. Muggins, uh, you mean the game's over? That's right, I won. Didn't you enjoy it? Oh, yes. Uh, let's play one more. Oh, but Hattie, it's almost nine o'clock. Well... Kind of tired tonight. <gasps> yeah, it's about time to turn in, get a little, good old shut-eye. Well, I suppose we'd better stick to our schedule. Yeah, that's right. Regularity, that's the thing. Throckmorton. <gasps> uh, uh, I didn't want to bring this up while the children were here. But uh, this Mrs. Ransom, uh, where is her husband? Oh, he died a couple of years ago. Are you sure? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, she looks like the divorcee kind to me. Now, Hattie, she's a very nice woman. Well, I dare say she's all right in her way. It's, it's none of my business anyway. <laughs> well. Uh, let's play one more game of cribbage, Stockmorton. But, Hattie, it's nine o'clock. It, it's two minutes after nine. Oh, what's the difference? One game, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, the important thing is to be sound asleep by ten. I've got to be sound asleep at five after nine. Oh, silly. Uh, one game now. Come on, I'll deal. Yes, um... I remember when I, when I taught my sister Hilda to play cribbage. She didn't like it at first, and then after a while, she was crazy about it. I'll never learn it. Oh, yes, you will. You're catching on very fast. Uh, pick up your hands, Martin. But I don't want to play. I... Oh, no, 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 no. These are the ones you pick up. Confounded, Hattie, I... <laughs> Now, who on earth can that be? I haven't any idea. I'll answer. No, 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 no. Let me answer it. Well, go ahead and answer it, Throckmorton. No, I guess I better not. Shall I? No, no, don't answer it, Hattie. It's probably just somebody who wants to complain about the water department. <laughs> I've told them not to switch those calls here. Let it ring. Yeah, let it ring. Very well, Throckmorton. Uh, go ahead and play. Uh, it's uh, your play, Throckmorton. Come on, telephone! Telephone, 
please telephone. Throckmorton, your play. Oh, Muggins. Ken Carpenter speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company, makers of parquet margarine and a complete line of famous quality food products, inviting you to join us again next week at the same time for the further adventures of the great Gildersleeve. Good night, Mr. Kraft. And that's the great Gildersleeve from February 4th, 1945. One of my favorite comedies. Gildersleeve. I love him. I love him, my, too. My brother, uh, my crabby brother, Vince, he doesn't, like, doesn't like Gildersleeve. Not sure why. It was really the first series where it was a uh, uh, sort of a father figure raising kids not married. You know, they were his orphaned niece and nephew. And so it was cool. I mean, like later on television, there was Family, family affair, affair. Sure. But he was the first guy doing this. And I just think it was a, just a brilliant series. And I love it. So anyway, that's from February 4th, 1945. The Great Gildersleeve. Shirley Mitchell in that cast, along with Walter Tentley, Lillian Randolph, Louise Erickson. Ken Carpenter, and that guy was really good with the tool tool bag, that Ken Carpenter. I bet. He was the announcer, sponsored by Kraft, is heard on NBC. Let's take a break. Then it's more here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. Lisa Wolf here to my right and the great Mike Costella, our executive producer, over to my left. What a team. What a team here. If this was a baseball team, we'd go all the way to the World Series. Well, I think we're winners right here at Hollywood. We definitely are. All right, it's time for the FBI in peace and war. The FBI has a reputation, Lisa, for always getting their man, and this reputation was built on the hard work of the Bureau's brave field agents as well as the bureaucratic acumen of long-term director J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI was involved in several radio projects that had their name attached to it, including This Is Your FBI, I Was a Communist for the FBI, and The FBI in Peace and War. Inspired by Frederick Lewis Cullen's book, The FBI in Peace and War, usually dealt with lesser crimes than murder, such as robbery, racketeering, and interstate car theft. The narrative was told mostly from the point of view of the criminals and how they were tracked and finally caught by the good guys. Veteran character actor Martin Blaine regularly played field agent Shepard, and Donald Briggs was his boss, the ambiguous Mr. Andrews. The FBI in Peace and War came to CBS Radio 1944 and enjoyed top ratings bowing out in 1958. Time now for the FBI in Peace and War from October 27, 1954. This is called The 80 Grand Exit. It stars Martin Blaine. Here's part one of the FBI in Peace and War. The FBI in Peace and War. Another great story based on Frederick L. Collins' copyrighted book, The FBI in Peace and War. Drama, thrills, action. Tonight's story, The 80 Grand Exit. I apologize for breaking in on you this way, sir. Gentlemen, I left strict instructions that I was not to be... I know, sir, but I'm afraid this can't wait. All right, then. Say what it is, past. I'm busy. Well? Miss Carter, would you mind... 
I don't mean to be evasive, Mr. Ramsey, but in the bank's best interest, I'd better speak with you alone. All right, Miss Carter. I'll call you in a few moments. Sit down, Albert. Sit down. Thank you, sir. Now then, it's about Earl Kelvin, sir. His wife called a short while ago, said he was sick and wouldn't be in today. Well, is that what you wanted to see me about? Put a substitute teller in Kelvin's place, Albert, and please ask Miss Carter to step back in here. I already put a substitute teller in his place, sir. Hmm? He reported a defalcation. $80,000 missing from Earl's cash drawer. $80,000, Mr. Ramsey. All of it in tens and twenties. That's what I wanted to see you about. In the early part of this year, the Federal Bureau of Investigation was called in on what at the surface appeared to be a routine bank embezzlement. A trusted teller had walked off with exactly $80,000 of his employer's funds. But underneath the surface was a situation far from routine, which was to develop into one of the most unusual cases ever to be investigated by your FBI. For Earl Kelvin had planned and planned well, both in his entrance to crime and his 80 grand exit. Who is it? Me, Earl. Ellie. Come on in. No one followed you? No one could. I didn't call the bank to tell them you were sick till I was safely out of town. All right, good. Let me take your thing. Hey, place isn't bad. I told you you'd like it. You also like the people. A lot more friendly than back east. Sit down, I'll fix your drink. Scotch? You better fill me in first. This is all going too fast for little Ellie. Okay. You ask the questions, I'll answer. All right, what's her name? Johnson. Mr. and Mrs. Edward Johnson. Occupation? A salesman. I uh, think I look most like a salesman, don't you? Here you are. Mm. I don't know if you look most like a salesman, but you sure don't look like Earl Kelvin. <laughs> well, that's good enough. Matter of fact, I like you better like this. What about the money? Drink up and I'll show you. No, I don't mean that. Ma said you left 5000 with her. No, she's right, I did. Why? All part of the plan, Ellie. When the police see what series those bills are, they'll think they have a lead on the rest. And they won't. They sure won't. If Ma plays her hand right. Don't you worry about Ma. I made sure that 5000 was entirely different. Well, that'll be Mitch. I've been expecting his call. Hello. Hello, Ed Johnson. Yes, yeah, speaking. You get that speech I sent? I got it. All right, read it back, will you? I want my wife to hear how it sounds. Ellie. All right, go ahead. Uh, hello, Ma, this is Earl. I'm just calling quick to let you know Ellie and me arrived today okay, and you shouldn't worry. I can't tell you where we are, and we won't be able to call anymore because the cops may tap your line. Hold on now, Ellie wants to speak no, Okay, Mitch, that's enough. You've got it. You know when to call? I know. Just leave it to me, Ed. So long, I'll be seeing you. So long, Mitch. Well... Earl calls Ma when the cops are there. They trace the call and think you're in Baltimore. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thought of everything, haven't you? Well, I've tried to. When you steal 80000 from a bank, it's always a good idea. Next question? No more questions. Just show me the loot. Like you always said, Earl, money talks. And that's the first portion of the FBI in Peace and War with the 80 grand exit from October 27, 1954, starring Martin Blaine. Let's uh, take a break. Then it's more on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. 
Now, let's get back to the FBI in peace and war. Immediately after the Bureau was informed of Earl Kelvin's defection, Agent Reynolds and I were assigned to the case. Ordinarily, our investigation would have begun at the bank, but the first in a series of developments happened so quickly that the immediate locale of our inquiry changed to the rooming house where the missing teller had residence. This development was the discovery of some of the stolen bills in the closet of Kelvin's bedroom. Agent Reynolds and I arrived on the scene shortly thereafter. The doors of the rooming house had been left unlatched. We were directed upstairs to the small suite of rooms Earl Kelvin had occupied. Mr. Ramsey, an executive of the bank, was waiting for us. Well, you do, gentlemen. Uh, which of you did I speak with over the phone? You spoke with Agent Reynolds, Mr. Ramsey. I'm Howard Stevens. Oh, Mr. Ramsey. Yes, Albert. Do you want Mrs. Elson in there? Uh, send her in. Yes. The money's right here in this bag, Mr. Stevens, just the way Mrs. Elson found it. Five thousand. Almost five. Forty-nine hundred. You were able to identify the bills, Mr. Ramsey? Oh, yes. They're ours, all right. You say a Mrs. Elson found the money? Earl Kelvin's mother-in-law. You can talk to her in a minute. Good. I only hope you can get more out of her than I did, Mr. Stevens. Uncooperative? On the contrary, she's a rather odd oh, woman, as you see. If anything, she's too... Mr. Ramsey? Uh, come right in, Mrs. Elson. Well, thank you, young man. Thank you so much, Mr. Ramsey. Well, but uh, shut that door, will you? Uh, sit down, please, Mrs. Elson. Oh, I'm much too upset to sit down, really. If you have any more questions to ask me, you just go right ahead. You young men are agents of the FBI, aren't you? The nice officer inside told me. Mrs. Elson. Oh, there. Now I gave him away. And after I promised not to. But then I promised Earl not to. Mrs. Elson. Yes? All right with you, Mr. Ramsey? Well, of course, by all means. You promised your son-in-law not to give him away? Yes, sir, I did. And Earl's such a nice boy. I feel real bad about that. You do? Well, I should hope so. After all, it isn't every day a boy's thoughtful enough to leave his wife's mother a bundle of money. The $4,900, you think he deliberately left it? Oh, I know he did. He only hid it in the closet so Ellie wouldn't find out. Am I talking too much, young man? Ellie? Who's Ellie? His wife, my daughter. Real name's Natalie, but she'd scratch your eyes out if you called her that. It seems you're rather fond of your son-in-law, Mrs. Elson. Why did you give him away? Why? Oh, I'm fond of my son-in-law, sure, but I'm also a law-abiding citizen. Earl made a mistake, and the good Lord will only help him... Oh, pardon me. Just one minute, Mrs. Elson. Hmm? Shall I take it, Chief? After Mrs. Elson says hello. Just hello, Mrs. Elson. Then Agent Reynolds will take the receiver. Well, all right, but I think it's only Mrs. Des Moines. Wednesdays we usually see a showdown. Now go ahead, Mrs. Elson. Answer and then hand it to me. Hello? Hello, Ma. This is Earl. Okay, Mrs. Elson. I'm just calling quick to let you know Ellie and me arrived okay. You shouldn't worry. I can't tell you where we are. We won't be able to call anymore because the cops may tap your line. You hold on now. Ellie wants to speak to you. Ellie... Any last words you want to say to me, Ma? Ma? Hold it, Ellie. Don't say anything. Hang up. Hung up. Uh-huh. Well, what'd he say? Not much, Mrs. Elson. But quite enough for us to... Oh, uh, operator, this is a federal agent speaking. An out-of-town call just came into this number. I want to have it traced immediately, please. <laughs> Enforcement agencies, Baltimore, Maryland, and vicinity. Be on the lookout for Earl Kelvin. Description follows. This man is wanted for embezzling $80,000 from the Second National Bank. Hello, this is Marvin Miller with another page from your American Heritage scrapbook. It was in 1854 that Cyrus West Field, a wealthy New York paper manufacturer, 
came out of voluntary retirement at the age of 35 to fulfill a dream and join the old world and the new with a transatlantic telegraph cable. The cable was to extend 2,300 miles from the coast of Ireland to the Canadian province of Newfoundland. The United States and Great Britain pooled their resources in the effort. The American warship Niagara was converted into a cable layer, and the British contributed and converted their ship, the Agamemnon. The cable used was flimsy by today's standards, just five-eighths of an inch in diameter, and it had to be laid on an ocean floor that was two and a half miles below the surface. Many heartbreaking failures plagued, but did not discourage the effort. And after several unsuccessful attempts, the two ships rendezvoused once again in mid-Atlantic on July 29, 1858. The cables on each ship were spliced together. The intricate paying-out machinery was set in motion. And as the cable began its descent to the ocean floor, the ships set their courses, one east, one west. The Niagara proceeded to Newfoundland without mishap. The Agamemnon was successful, too, after weathering a bad storm and the threatening cavortings of a playful whale. Cyrus Field's dream became a reality. Queen Victoria and President Buchanan exchanged greetings to inaugurate the new cable, which had cut communication time between the two countries from ten days to only minutes. Man was conquering distance and time. Cyrus Field proved it could be done with a cable that connected half the globe and formed a link in the growth of America through transportation and communication. And it is believed that Calvin is hiding out somewhere in the vicinity of Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> yeah, great sleuthing. Those FBI's must be real seven-day wonders. Will you the rest? Okay, I got all the additions. Uh, Mitch get here yet? Uh, not yet. But we can expect him any time now. Uh-huh. Well, I just called to read you the news, honey. I'll be home as soon as I finish my shopping. All right, I'll see you then. Bye. Bye. So? You got a kick out of it. I should think so. What else? Let's go back to the table. Sure. What else? You didn't get here yet. Oh, I didn't? Uh-uh. But we can expect you any time. <laughs> After you. Well, another beer? No, I better start getting back. No, uh, okay. You say so. You better start arriving in town. When? Tomorrow? Yeah. Uncle old Earl from the station. That's been funnily. That goes double. Kind of too bad it has to end. Well, the thing goes, all good things have to. What if they don't? Oh, now, Mitch, we're not going into all that again. Why not? You hate Earl's guts. How many times have you told me that? You would have worked out on him years ago if it hadn't been for the job he had. What's stopping you now? The same reasons would stop me then. Eighty thousand dollars. You're kidding yourself, Ellie. You know Earl. You won't see a dime of that eighty. You'll throw the whole caboodle in some small business, a gas station, maybe hardware. You know that. Maybe I do, but what you're offering's no better. I'm offering the eighty thousand. Every dime of it. What? With Earl in the lockup, who's next in line? Hmm? Well. Turn him in. <laughs> Now, don't tell me the thought never entered that pretty mind. It did, I admit it, but it went right out again. Why? Well, you know why. Kill me when he got out. Why you? Well, only two of us know what he looks like since he changed his face. It'd have to be one of us turned him in or both. What if there was another way to turn him in? An airtight way so we'd never know. There isn't any. What if there was? 
Suppose he paid for something with one of those bank bills, and when the cops picked him up, he had more bills on him. Not a chance. Why not? Because Earl took care of that most thoroughly. The only bills that could be identified were the ones he left with Ma. All 5,000 worth. That's why. 4,900 worth. You're shy a century, Ellie. What? 4,900. I held out 520s. These babies right here. 520s. Century. Now, what I was thinking, uh, there's nobody has access to a husband's wallet like a wife. Now, if you were to take, say, four of these 20s and change them for, say, uh, four of Earl's. Mitch, you louse, you had this idea from the start. <laughs> maybe I did, maybe Ma talked me into it. Just still didn't answer, Ellie. What if there was an airtight way to turn Earl in? <laughs> Stevens, FBI, Washington Confidential. I've apprehended three suspects answering your description, Earl Kelvin. I'm holding them for questioning pending your arrival. Sign it, Powell, Baltimore Police. No? No, that's not Kelvin. You are sure, Mr. Ramsey? I'm positive. Okay, take him out, me, and bring in the next. Now, you understand, Mr. Ramsey, he may have altered his appearance considerably, dyed his hair, scarred his face. I understand that, Inspector. You'd be amazed the lengths some of these fellows go. Why, I... Oh, pardon me. Certainly. That's it, me, and bring him right in. Uh, you go ahead, gentlemen. I'll be right with you. All right, Sergeant. Thank you. Inspector, how about this one, Mr. Ramsey? All right, put him on. Well, he does look a little like Earl Kelvin, but I'm certain he Oh, Mr. Stevens. Yes, Inspector. I'm sorry, Mr. Ramsey. This may be interesting. One of you fellows had better listen on the extension. Oh, Dave, would you mind? Sure thing. This phone here, Inspector? Either one. The call's from Ohio. Man says he was handed one of the missing bank bills. Go Uh ahead, please, Mr. Ramsey. Steve, hold up a minute. All right, sir. Please continue. Well, I'm only going to say this once. I don't want to be involved in any trouble. It's just this man, Ed Johnson, came into my store and he paid for something with a $20 bill. Uh, I always check big bills at the cash register for possible counterfeits. Well, I checked this one. It matched up with the newspaper information on that Newark bank embezzlement. I kept my mouth shut till this Ed Johnson left the store, and then I, I called you collect like the paper said. I'm delivering the $20 bill to our local police, and that's the end of it as far as I'm concerned. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm just doing my duty. That's all I got to say. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ellie, dear, how are you? I'm fine, Ma, but Earl isn't. No? No, he isn't fine at all. The police just arrested him here in Akron. Well, that had to happen sooner or later, Ellie. You come on home and I'll take care of you. I'm all right, Ma. I want to stay here for a few days in case the police should ask me anything. Mitch will take care of me. Don't worry. All right, I won't. You just remember what I said. This had to happen sooner or later. It's all for the best, believe me. I do believe you, Ma. In fact, I don't miss that's just what you say. This is all for the best. <laughs> Go on, she didn't. She did. Yes, I'm telling you in just those words. It's all for the best. Oh, that Ma, she kills me. Go ahead. What else did she say? Oh, come on home. I'll take care of you. And you said, no, thank you, ma'am. Mitch is going to handle that egg. How'd you know? <laughs> Intuition. Oh, here's what I said. 
Stepping into my parlor, said the spider. Uh-huh. Switch on the light, will you? I want to go flip it in something more comfortable. Sure. Only make sure it's something black, huh? I mean, after all, there's such a thing as... Such a thing as what? Mitch, such a thing as... Go on, Mitch. Tell her. Oh. Such a thing as what? Uh, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Shouldn't I be asking you that? This is my house. Well, uh, I should be here, shouldn't I? Earl. Shouldn't I, Ellie? We thought you were picked up, Earl. You did? Yes, Mitch said. Oh, I can imagine what Mitch said. Well, anyway, that, that doesn't matter now. Those wasn't so. But it was so, Millie. Hmm? I was picked up. I had a nice long session with the FBI. And they... they let you go? That's right. I told them they had the wrong man, that I wasn't Earl Kelvin. My name was Ed Johnson, and I could prove it. Oh, Earl. You're happy for me, huh, Ellie? Well, what do you think? Mm, you too, Mitch? You're happy? <laughs> I'll say I am. Brother, what a scare. <laughs> Why, I, I should have known you'd talk out, Earl. Yeah, you should have. After all, you can prove it, like you say. Just because they find you with a couple of bills. That bills. Mean. Who said anything about bills? What? How did you know what they found, Mitch? Well, I didn't. I, I, I only meant... Mitch didn't know about the 5,000, Earl. He only meant... Yeah, he can talk, Ellie. Let Mitch say what he means. He's had practice. Haven't you, Mitch? Earl, if you've got some crazy idea... I have I, no I, crazy I... idea. I've got the right idea. What are you saying, Earl? I'm saying the FBI let me go for one very good reason. What reason? Earl, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Some tipster phoned in that I was carrying stolen bills. I said that wasn't possible. They said it was possible and proved it. And just when they were also going to prove that I was Kelvin, one of their agents spoke up and said I couldn't be. What? One of their agents? A man named Reynolds. He said I couldn't be because he'd heard Kelvin's voice over the phone with Mar Elsom. And it wasn't anything like mine. And then he said something else. Something real interesting. All day, he'd been trying to remember where he'd heard this tipster's voice before. Now he knew. It was the same voice as Kelvin's on the phone with Ma. The same voice, Mitch. Earl. Put that gun away, Earl. What are you going to do? Just what you think. Only first I'm going to find out where you hid my money. Listen, Earl, you've got it wrong. I didn't know that Mitch... Ellie. Tell him the truth, Mitch. Don't drag me into this. Where's the money, Ellie? I don't know. Up upstairs, where it's always I've been. I've been upstairs. Don't lie to me. I'm not lying. I don't know. Sure you do. Both of you know. I want that money, Mitch. Now, for the last time, where is it? You've got three counts. One. He means it, Mitch. Two. It's under the front seat of my car. Okay. That's more like it. Open the door, Ellie. We'll all go out and have a look. Go ahead, Mitch. And don't try anything. Or you never will again. All right, keep walking up to the car, both of you. I'm right behind you. We're right behind you, huh? All of you stand where you are. We're federal officers. Stand where you are with your hands raised. I'll take that gun, Kelvin. Come on, let's have it. You knew all along, huh? It was only a setup. Sorry for the deception, but we wanted to recover the money. Also, we wanted to find out just whose voice it was. Come on, Ellie, run for it. Hold it, hold it, behind. Keep going. Oh, you can oh, make it. Keep you. going, Ellie. I was only...
only warning. The next one's for Chief. Stand where you are, both of you. Don't move. All right. I'm not moving. Don't you? I'm not moving. This is Marvin Miller with another page from your American Heritage scrapbook. Speaking in a broad sense, the American Revolution was not the same thing as the American War of Independence. The war lasted eight years, but the revolution lasted over a century and a half. It began when the first permanent settlers landed on the shores of America. It has been said that insurrection of thought always precedes insurrection of deed. And over the years, such a change occurred in the thinking of the colonists that the revolution was nearly completed in their minds before the first bullets began to fly. Consider for a moment. The colonies were settled largely by emigrants who were discontented or rebellious in spirit, by people who couldn't adjust to life in the old world, whether socially, politically, economically, or religiously. Some were tired of bowing to their betters, Others wanted a share in government, or a richer portion of the world's goods, or to worship God as they chose. The nightmare crossing of the Atlantic impressed upon their minds that the London government was now far away, 3,000 perilous miles. They had to become self-sufficient to survive in the lonely American wilderness. The dense forests and rugged pioneering conditions changed their patterns of living and their habits of thought. The barbaric crudeness of their surroundings forced them to become independent. As time passed, Americans matured and acquired privileges of self-government enjoyed by no other colonial peoples, further increasing their self-confidence. It was a subtle revolution being wrought within the people themselves. The insurrection of thought was slow, insidious, and irresistible. Insurrection of deed was predestined by the newly developed strength, self-confidence, individualism, and spirit of independence of young America. With the arrest of Mitch Borton and Natalie Kelvin and the recovery of almost all of the stolen money, the final step was taken quietly when a return visit was made to Mrs. Elsom at the rooming house in Newark. Together with Earl Kelvin, all four were quickly tried and convicted, their subsequent varied sentences closing the 80 grand exit. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. And that's the FBI in Peace and War, broadcast going back to 1954, October 27th to be exact. That's called The 80 Grand Exit, starring Martin Blaine. Before we uh, take a break, Lisa, I want to bring in a very good friend of mine, Roy Clem. He is the vice president of Song Sparrow Farm. And uh, he is a very interesting person, has a very interesting company, and I think our listeners all across the country will really enjoy meeting Roy. Roy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Roy, tell, it's a pleasure to have you. Tell us about Song Sparrow Farm. Song Sparrow Farm, my wife and I own it, and it's a mail-order company where we ship really nice plants around the world to people. They can buy one, they can buy ten. It's, it's real easy. We have a great website 
I think there's over a thousand line items on the website, well pictured, well described, with a lot of complimentary information to help you make these garden choices. Now, you are a horticulturist, right? That's right. You and your wife? Yes, ornamental horticulturist, because we deal mainly in ornamental plants. We're dealing in food for the soul, which is ornamental horticulture. Very, very cool. So you're a fourth-generation horticulturist. Tell me how that has passed generation to generation through your family. Well, when I was real young, my dad gave me lots of responsibility, and I, I liked it, and I grabbed hold, and... um you know, I, I just did it. I liked it all my life, and I enjoyed it and worked hard at it. 19, I'm sorry, 1852 is when you guys, your family started in this business. Oh, You've been right. doing this for a long time, huh? That's right. You, you think we'd know what we're doing by now. <laughs> that's right. So I know you ship anywhere in the world, and we were looking at your website. Can you tell me some of the um, flowers um, that are really special to you? Well, peonies are especially uh Really, really popular with us, and we've put a lot of work into them. We've hybridized them for three generations. I think we've uh, maybe named and registered over 400 varieties. Wow. Um, we try to hybridize peonies that are great for your garden, that have short, strong stems, and weather-resistant, and, of course, wonderful colors with, with great fragrance. Now, there's over a 1,000 different plants at this website. Now, let me give the website. It's Song Sparrow just like the bird, songsparrow.com. Make sure you check it out. And not only are there thousands or over a thousand different plants at this website, but there's amazing tips for uh, for the, the, the uh, gardener. There's all kinds of tips and helpful hints and also weekly specials. You change specials uh, every week or every two weeks. Right, right. They're on the front page of the website, our, our specials. We're running one right now, and um, we keep keep making it interesting. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, I've really learned a lot about how much goes into this. You know, you go to these big chain stores and and, I'm, and you don't realize really what um, is behind all of this and what makes a plant unique and really best for your garden. Well, we, we try to push the boundaries of horticulture through plant breeding, where we make new varieties for the people and make gardening more exciting. I think we have 160 varieties of peonies alone. <laughs> and they very are beautiful. Cool. Yeah, very, very good. You have to check out... Roy Clem's website, and it is uh, songsparrow.com, just like the bird sparrow, songsparrow.com. And even if you don't buy anything at the website, you have to check out all of the links that he has there, help you be a better horticulturist or gardener. Great having you on the show. Would you stick around for our second show? Oh, yes, Carl, I sure And we'll talk sure a little would. bit more. Thank you. All right, very good. Um, let's take a break. Then it's more here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next time here on the Hollywood 360 Radio Network, we'll tune into a sci-fi adventure of X-1. Then it's part one of the Milton Burl Show. Lisa and I and Mike Estelle see you on our next program.